Uh, Lee is at a visiting church this morning. Lee is our vocational elder. For those of you that are visiting or for those of you that aren't familiar with our church, he's the vocational elder. He does the, the preaching and the teaching primarily here. I'm one of the lay elders. This is not my day job. I'm a medical salesman, and it's been a busy week. And I'll tell you, every time I preach, and it's been a long time, it's been probably over a year since I preached last, I am reminded of how thankful I am for Lee Davis. Uh, because I'll tell you, preparing a sermon is hard work. It, it's literally, it is work, and it takes a long time. And I'm so thankful that he does that for us, and he serves us in that way. I'm reminded of, uh, actually a while ago, I had a preacher friend of mine, and he said he wished that every person in his church would have to prepare a sermon at one point uh, throughout the life of the church, just so they could kind of empathize with his struggle. Uh, so anyway, uh, it is a blessing, like I said, to be with you. Let me pray one more time as we focus our minds on the word here. Lord, come, Holy Spirit, come, clarify the word, um, clarify the scriptures that we're going to look at, um, make our minds and our hearts sharp this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many things in life are easy to start, but difficult to finish. Many people start diets, but shortly thereafter, they drift or revert to old habits. Many people start exercising. A lot of people start, especially during the new year, they start exercising, but around mid-January, they fizzle out. The majority would fizzle out. Many of us start books we never finish. Many of us start house projects or home projects, but never complete them. The list is virtually endless. And all of these things, they are easy to start, but difficult to finish. In the same way, usually the Christian life is easy to start, but difficult to follow through to the end. Like the parable of the soils, in the beginning, things go pretty well. So Jesus said, Some, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word, and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Some hear the gospel, that they can receive the forgiveness of sins, that they can receive the righteousness of Christ, that they can be declared not guilty by the God of the universe, that they can receive the Holy Spirit, that they can receive a family of new believers who are full of love, peace, and joy. And furthermore, they can receive the promise of eternity in paradise. Who doesn't want that? Sign me up. I'll take that. Absolutely. Get me started. But as soon as difficulties, temptation, or persecution comes, many forsake the love they have at first, and in the words of Jesus, they fall away. Tragically, some never to return. It's easy to start, but it's hard to endure to the end and finish well. And that segues into our text this morning, and what we're going to be doing is I'm going to take us through a brief tour through the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Some speculate that it was Paul. Some say Barnabas, Luke. So we, we really don't know for sure who wrote it, but we do know from the content of this book that it was a church filled with Jewish background believers and maybe some Gentile converts who converted to Judaism who later became Christians as well. And this is a group of believers who, who started really well. 
In chapter 3, verse 14, the author speaks of the confidence that these believers had at first. And even more strikingly, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, 32-34, Recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they began well. They began so well that they were willing to endure suffering and even persecution for the sake of Jesus. They even joyfully accepted the the plundering of their possessions because they had a Godward eternal perspective. They were willing to forsake that for Christ because of what they had received in Jesus. They were willing to do that. What an impressive start. I'd have to imagine that was probably a more impressive start than many of us. And yet, as time passed, they've begun to drift, chapter 2, verse 1. They've begun to lose the confidence they had at first, 3, 14. They've begun to shrink back. They've grown weary with drooping hands and weak knees, chapter 12, verse 12. You know what that's like, right? If you see someone running a race with drooping hands and weak knees, that's an indication of what? That's an indication that they're about to drop. They're about to fall down hard. And the author here is warning them, and he's saying them, and he's writing to them, saying, listen, you're in danger of dropping out of the Christian race. And remember, these believers were were from a Jewish background, and they were being tempted to revert back to Judaism. So maybe from familial, maybe from social pressures, they are now, the, the temperatures getting turned up, and maybe just out of apathy and just ease, they are being tempted to go back to Judaism. And it's out of this context that the author writes this sermonic letter. And I say that with intentionality, Because at the end of chapter 13, the author says, I have written this exhortation to you. So the genre of Hebrews is kind of unique in that it's not just a general letter of the New Testament. It's not narrative. It's actually more uh, exhortation. It's it's more of a sermon. So what we have before us in Hebrews is like a sermonic letter. And in this word of exhortation, the author's word for them is twofold. And one is that Christ is superior to Judaism in every way. So don't revert back to an inferior religion. And two, the author warns them about the imminent danger of not persevering to the end. So first, we see the author's exhortation for these believers to stick with Jesus because of his superiority over all things. In chapter 1, verse 4, we see that Jesus is superior to angels. In chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. In chapter 5, and in chapters 7 through 10, we see the author articulate and unfold an argument, and along the way, he says that Jesus is superior to the Mosaic law, to the old covenant, to the tabernacle, to the high priest that preceded him, and to the Levitical priesthood system itself. 
So we see from these passages that Jesus is superior in every way to the Old Covenant. And in fact, the Old Covenant was just a shadow of what was to come. Now, what exactly does that mean to say that the Levitical priesthood and the law were just shadows? Chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 10, verse 1, they use that word. These are just shadows. Well, it means that the, 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 the Levitical priesthood system foreshadowed, or you could say pointed ahead to Jesus. And, and how, do, how is this so? Well, in one way, and we see this articulated through these chapters in Hebrews, is through the office and the work of the high priest. See, the high priest was the mediator between God and his people. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was a descendant of Aaron. Remember, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest. And the most important of his duties, the duties of the high priest, came once a year. And still to this day, this is the holiest day in Judaism. And that is Yom Kippur, or also known as Day of Atonement. It's laid out specifically as far as the details in Leviticus chapter 16. And on this day, the high priest would do some ceremonial washings to cleanse himself. He would put on the ordained and prescribed garments. And then he would take a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull for his sin and for the sins of his family. And he would take the blood from that sacrifice, and he would enter into the, the tabernacle, later the temple, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and you remember what the Holy of Holies is? Remember, it's within the tabernacle. You had a really thick curtain in a section of the tabernacle and later the temple. And it, it was this partition sectioned off uh, part of the temple called the Holy of Holies, this thick curtain from top to bottom. And once a year, the priest, the high priest, only the high priest was allowed to enter in and there he would make atonement on behalf of the, the sins of the people. And so he would take first the blood. He would slaughter the blood of the bull the, bull, the blood from the bull, he would take it, spread it over the Ark of the Covenant, which is, was in the Holy of Holies. And then after that, the high priest would then take two goats. He would take one of the goats, and he would sacrifice it just as he did the bull, and he would take the blood, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it to make atonement for the sins of the people. And this was for all of the people of Israel. So he atoned for his sins, then for the sins of all the people, and then the other goat was used as a scapegoat. The high priest would place his hands on the head of the scapegoat. Literally, he would do that. That's what he was prescribed to do. And the sins of the people of Israel would be transferred from, as, through the mediator of the high priest, so from the people, through the mediator of the high priest, to the goat. And then the scapegoat was commanded to be taken outside into the wilderness and taken away outside the camp. And he was to be carrying the sins of the people outside of the camp so that they would be forgiven for another year until Yom Kippur came the following year. So the blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the ark, and that is telling us, and that shows us, that this is the ritual appeasing of the wrath of God for another year. And the second goat is removing the sins of the people. And what we have here, are, and I'm going to throw out just Real quickly, I usually don't like to do this, but two theological words, and that is the word propitiation and the word expiation. So propitiation is the act of appeasing the wrath of God, so satisfying the wrath of God. God is a holy and just and righteous God. He must punish sin. And so that's appeased, and that wrath is satisfied through the blood of the goat 
and that sacrifice is poured over there, the atonement, or the uh, atonement seat, or the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And the second one, we have, propi- or we have atonement, or expiation, which is the act of atoning for sin and removing it from the sinner. So propitiation is the act of appeasing God's wrath, or satisfying it, while expiation is the act of atoning for sin and removing it from the sinner. So both are important, and both are important in the Levitical priesthood system, and both are important as we understand this author's argument as he's pointing towards Jesus. And do you see how both then would be eternally achieved in Christ? When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he appeased God's wrath against sin, taking that wrath on himself. Romans 5.9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And the removal of sin by the second goat was a living parable that God would remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from, his, from the west, Psalm 103. And he would remember them no more. And so do you see the, the picture that God's giving us here? The picture of the priest laying the hands on the scapegoat. The sins of the people being transferred through the high priest, the mediator, mediator to the goat. Do you see how this correlates to Jesus? When any person becomes a Christian, what they're doing is they're placing their hands, metaphorically but really, on Christ, on the cross, and their sins and the judgment and the wrath of God against their sins is being transferred from them to this great, what was Jesus called? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's, it's placed upon Jesus. And Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. And then the righteousness and the holiness of Christ is then imputed or placed and transferred among the person who's placing their faith in Jesus. It's this great exchange that takes place. And remember that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies that you're only allowed to go in once a year and if you, if you did anything that, that violated the ways prescribed in the law in which you were to handle that, you were to be struck dead? That curtain, remember when we read the narratives in the Gospels, was torn in two from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Jesus. And that shows us that before the presence of God was through the mediator, a man, a sinful man, a priest, who did it year after year and who sacrificed the blood of bulls and goats and lambs who cannot take away sin, Hebrews 10 says. But this great high priest, Jesus, who came in a, in a different order, who's an eternal high priest, he comes, he makes sacrifice for sins once for all. And he opens up the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, not through a curtain, but through himself. And he gives us direct access to God the Father. We can go to the God the Father, as we did this morning in prayer, we can go to him at any time, because we have a high priest now who is our mediator between God and men, who is Jesus Christ. What a glorious and wonderful good news for us. Isn't it beautiful how Scripture works together? You've got the, the sacrificial system. You've got these shadows that were pointing toward Jesus. You've got the story of the, the curtain being torn in two in the Gospels. And you have the articulation of this in Hebrews. So the Mosaic Law and the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood were signs that pointed to the reality that was coming, who was Christ. So the author of the Hebrews is asking, he's asking these believers, why, after Christ himself had come, the one to whom the scriptures pointed, 
Would you go back to the sign? You know, it's kind of like someone who, or a family, and we have some in this church that have planned a vacation to Disney World, right? So this, this isn't just a thing you do over the weekend. For us up here, it's something that you plan maybe for a year, maybe months, maybe a handful of weeks, and, and you, you, you pay for the tickets, you, you, you plan ahead, you pack, and then finally it's time to go, and so you make the long drive down to Disney World, and as you're driving, you start to see some signs. Maybe 100 miles out, you see a sign, Disney World, 100 miles ahead. Oh, man, you're getting close. 50 miles out, you see another, even bigger sign, more colorful sign. Disney World, 50 miles ahead. All right, we're almost there. You get to Disney World, and Dad jumps out of the car, and he goes, you know what? Let's not go to Disney World. Let's go back to the sign. Let's go back to the sign. It's a beautiful sign. We'll drive back 50 miles the other direction. We'll get out of the car, and we'll look at the sign. We don't need the park. That's ridiculous. That is just foolishness. And that is exactly the author's point. Why, after receiving the Son of God, the Creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, would you go back to the Mosaic Law whose whole existence was to point forward to Jesus? He's come. Why would you go back? Don't go back to the sign. Christ is superior to Judaism in every way. So don't go back to what the author is saying. Stick with the author and perfecter of your faith your great high priest, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, stick with Jesus. And yet, as these believers were tempted to leave Jesus and revert to their old ways, often we are too. I mean, it's easy to go back to doing things the the way we did them as unbelievers if you were old enough to remember that or or even to go back to doing or to to go back towards doing things as unbelievers i mean to spend all your money on yourselves give nothing to the lord i mean no point in making sacrifices or cutting back right i mean just indulge in yourself it's about you or perhaps perhaps you're tempted to go back to to drinking the way you did before you were not before you were a believer or tempted to go back into those sexually immoral ways or to give up on your marriage, or to give up on the church or Christian fellowship, or to go back on living your life as though God doesn't exist, as the Puritan said, as practical atheists. You live a prayerless, fruitless, just spiritually apathetic life toward Christ. And the practical implications for us and for those in Hebrews are about the same. We're being tempted to go back to revert back. And it's as though the author had these things in mind as he wrote this sermon for them, as he wrote the book of Hebrews. Which leads us into the second way in which the author exhorts us and exhorts these believers to press on in the faith. And that's through the warning passages. The first warning the author gives us, and you can turn there, is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He writes, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? These verses are connected with chapter 1. The main point of chapter 1 
is that in these last days, Jesus, God has spoken a final word to us through his son, Jesus. And Jesus is the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and God of the universe. And he is superior, or superior over all things, including angels. And so therefore, we must pay careful attention to his message. We must be exceedingly careful to listen to him. Because if the message declared by angels proved to be true and binding, how much more should we listen to Jesus, who is the very creator of those angels? It's interesting that in the Mosaic Law, or that the Mosaic Law was given to us through angels. This is deduced by the New Testament writers from Deuteronomy 33, uh, verse 2. And we read in Acts 7.53 that Stephen declared to his Jewish audience that they had, and this is 7.53, received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And Paul writes in Galatians 3.19 that the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Galatians 3.19 and Acts 7.53. So the Mosaic law that was declared by angels was binding, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Meaning that when God said in his law, if you do this, and if you obey me, you'll be blessed like this. And they, if they would do that, then they were blessed. And if God said, if you disobey me, if you rebel against me, then you will be cursed, and the cursing will be like this. And if they rebelled, then the curse would be like that. And even in the nitty, in the gritty, and in the fine details of his law, this was true. When God said, you will lose this battle, they lost it. You will win this battle, they won it. If God said, and God did say, if you continue on in your rebellion and your disobedience, then you'll be overtaken by your enemies and you'll be held captive and taken into a foreign land. And it happened. Twice. And so therefore, the author declares to these Hebrew believers that if the Israelites did not escape the judgment of God, from the message they receive from angels, how much more will we not escape if we neglect the message received directly from God the Son? Do you see that? Later in chapter 10, the author warns in similar light, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 says. Brothers and sisters, it is very dangerous to neglect this great and glorious salvation. The Israelites who received the wrath of God for their sins serves as a warning for us, for the Hebrews at that time, and for a warning for us today as well. Don't be apathetic toward this good news. Don't live your life as though Jesus wasn't your Savior. Don't ignore him in prayer. Don't live as though he doesn't exist. Don't be ashamed of him. I mean, it's, it's easy to say nothing of your faith and your love for Christ to your coworkers, unbelieving family members, friends, neighbors. But it's hard to not join in in the godless chatter and the perverted talk of those unbelievers at work. It's hard not to hoard your money and spend it all on yourself and give nothing to your local church or to missions or to the poor. It's hard to stick it out in your marriage when things get difficult. It's hard to deny yourself 
leisure activities and spend more time and perhaps the time you should be spending with your family at home. It's hard to keep trusting in the goodness of God when your loved ones get seriously sick. It's hard to confront the sins of a brother or sister when they've fallen. It's hard to do that. It's hard to, to confront a brother or sister in Christ when they've sinned against you. But we're called to do that. Ah, uh, well, I don't like confrontation. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm just going to take one for the team here. No. You do what Scripture says. You do the hard thing. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. Luke 13 or Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And only a few find it. So this striving through the narrow gate, this going down the hard road, is what the author is getting at in chapter 2, verse 1. Do not drift, he says. Is that not more or less what drifting is? I mean, if you take a piece of bark and you throw it into the river, it has a fast-moving current downstream. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to flow right downstream. And the author of the Hebrews is saying to them, he said, the, the life as a Christian is as though you are in this fast-current river. And you're in there, and if you just float, if you just drift, you're going to go downstream, down current, and that current is going toward the Niagara Falls of God's judgment and is emptying into hell itself. And the author of the Hebrews is standing at the side of the river and he's yelling, do not neglect your great salvation. Don't do it. Remember the gospel. Believe in Christ. Don't go down there. Judgment is coming, Hebrews 9.27. For man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. There's no second chances. Wake up, start swimming. That's the Christian life. That's the idea we get in this book, is you can't drift. You've got to fight. So don't drift, but instead do what chapter 2, verse 1 says. Pay much closer attention to him. How do you do that? Well, you listen to the teachings of Jesus. They're found in the Gospels. You listen to the New Testament. You listen to the words of Scripture. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews, you fix your thoughts on Jesus. 12, 12 3, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. No, I'm sorry, yeah, that's 12, 3. Look to Jesus in prayer. Look to him in everything you do. The aim of our life, and we're told elsewhere in Scripture, that we are to live lives worthy of the gospel. So the aim of our life is to please Jesus, which means everything you do in life should be filtered through that. Is what I'm about to say pleasing to Jesus? Is what I'm about to do pleasing to Jesus? So oftentimes, if people get us upset, if we're angry, we give a visceral response and that's exactly what Scripture says not to do. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And so in those moments, calm your heart. Let's calm our hearts and let's pray. Okay, Lord, help me to respond in a way. Help me to say something that would be pleasing to Jesus.
is so relevant. So warning number one, do not drift away. Do not neglect this great salvation. And warning number two, which will be the last warning we'll look at, is in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. You can go ahead and turn there and take a closer look at this. Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief, or because of unbelief. So the Lord was attentive to the cries of the Israelites when they were in bondage, when they were in slavery in Egypt. And he rescued them. He delivered them out of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh. And after they got through the Red Sea, they had a journey to the Promised Land. And that journey only took and only should have taken 11 days, Deuteronomy 1 tells us. It's just an 11-day journey. But it didn't take them just 11 days to enter the Promised Land. How long did it take them? It took them 40 years. The only ones who were allowed to enter were Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else was denied to enter into God's rest. And why was that? It was because of their disobedient, evil, unbelieving, sinful hearts, our passage tells us. After all that God had done for them, think about it. Through miraculous signs and wonders, through ten plagues, through parting of the Red Sea, through collapsing the Red Sea on the enemies, on their enemies, and destroying them, by leading them day and night, literally through the wilderness, through providing them food when they were hungry, by providing them fresh water when they were thirsty, being so kind and gentle and loving and patient with them. And what was their response? Oh, they grumbled and they complained and there was incessant whining. Oh, the food was better in Egypt. If only we could go back to Egypt. At least we had garlic and spices and meat there. Here, all we have is a stinking manna. And why did you take us out to this desert to kill us? If only we could go back to Egypt. Oh my goodness, can you imagine the audacity of them to say that? This great and glorious God who answered their prayers and then they go back and say this to them? What ingrates. And even further still, they created a golden calf and they committed idolatry. They engaged in sexual immorality. They rebelled against God's leadership on a number of occasions. And so God struck them down in the desert. And he swore, they will never enter my rest. 
and neither will you Hebrews, and neither will we if we don't take heed this warning. So the author is making a correlation between these Israelites and his audience. Take care, brothers. Don't be like the Israelites. May you not have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't allow sin to harden your hearts like the Israelites. Don't rebel against the Lord like them. Don't provoke the Lord to anger like them. Don't continue in disobedience like them. Don't succumb to unbelief like them. Because if you do, you too will fall away. My my best friend in college became a believer about the same time that I did. And... Man, we were so close. I, I, I don't think I've ever had such Christian unity and fellowship as I had with this brother. And we were together all the time. We prayed together. We read scripture together. Talked about the Lord together. We went to the same church. Went to the same Bible studies. We were tight in the Lord. Like Jonathan and David, like iron sharpening iron, we were tight. And after I graduated, I, I went to the mission field in China, and he became a middle school teacher. And shortly after, he started drinking with some of his teacher colleagues. And that gave way to him drinking more and more heavily. And now, he is a full-blown alcoholic. He's in and he's out of jail. He's got a criminal record a mile long now. And he scoffs at the God of the Bible. He has no interest in the things of God, no love for Christ, no love for the people of Christ. Now this is maybe a bit of an extreme example, but it illustrates the reality that starting well does us no good if we do not persevere to the end. Now at this point, it's very important that I address this because if you start preaching on this and start teaching in these passages, there's some questions, there's some alarms going off in our heads, and rightly so. Some of you may be asking yourselves, well, is he saying that true born-again Christians can fall away from the faith and lose their salvation? No, I am not saying that. And the author of the Hebrews, author of Hebrews is not saying that either. Look at me in chapter 3, verse 14. He writes, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me put it negatively. If you don't hold to your original confidence firm to the end, then you did not come to share in Christ in the first place. Do you see that in the text? In other words, if you persevere to the end in your Christian walk, if you keep the faith and keep following Jesus until the day you die, then that proves, in fact, that you were and that you are a true Christian. But if you don't persevere to the end, it proves that you were never a Christian in the first place. In our day and age, we often look back toward our assurance of salvation. But oftentimes, the New Testament looks to the present and to the future. So when we're thinking about ourselves or when we're thinking about our loved ones and the, their assurance of salvation, we often go back to the time when they became a Christian. And that's a good and a glorious thing. But not, that's not the most important. What's more important is, are you persevering today? Are you trusting in Christ 
today? Are we faithfully walking with Jesus now? And will you continue to walk with Jesus till the day you die? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Similar language, Colossians 1, 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in the faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul is writing to believers here and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. In Matthew 10, and in Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says the same thing. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you do not endure to the end, you will not be saved. Period. So oftentimes we answer the question, are you a Christian, by saying, well, yeah, yeah, I made a decision to follow Jesus 5, 10, or 30 years ago, which is okay. But more importantly, we need to ask the question, are you following Jesus today? Are you walking with Christ now? And will you continue to do so until the day you die? So are we still repenting and trusting in Christ today? Or, like some of these Hebrews, are we beginning to abandon the things of the Lord? Are we giving up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing in this church? Are we continuing to swim upstream, not neglecting this great salvation? Are we fixing our eyes on Jesus? Are we continuing to fight the good fight of the faith? Okay, so no, you cannot lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. But maybe you have another question. And is that, am I saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christian? Am I setting just an unattainable standard? Am I preaching a doctrine of perfectionism? No. This one's pretty easy. In fact, John 1, 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So if anyone claims to be without sin in this life, they're deceived, one, and in fact, they're lying. So the very fact that they're saying that is sin. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? James says that we all stumble in many ways. Yes, real believers, they can backslide. They can go through down times. They can wander for a period of time, maybe even from the church. But they will not remain there. You cannot. You will not. What God has ordained in the Christian life is not autopilot. You don't hit a button, or it's not like an an inoculation, like you take an injection, ah, you're done with that, you never think about it again. That is not Christianity. You come to faith in Christ, and then you, with all of your might, you persevere, you swim upstream, you do not drift, you follow Christ. So am I saying you can lose your salvation? No. Am I saying that you have to be perfect to be a true Christian? No. And perhaps a third question that's going through your mind, am I saying that this is a works-based righteousness. 
And that my salvation is dependent on my obedience and my works? Am I saying that? No. The entirety of the New Testament denies this emphatically. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is helpful here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You hear that? It's not by work or by doing good works that we save ourselves. If you're thinking, oh, okay, what he's saying is, I need to clean up my, ma- my life more. I need to stop doing the bad stuff. I need to start doing the good stuff. I need to start showing up at church. I need to start, you know, helping the, the little old lady across the street. I got to start doing these things because then I'll be acceptable in God's sight. No. The New Testament is very clear. And in fact, if you do that, you're going to be worse off and more a child of the devil than you were before. That's what the Bible says. And yet, after our salvation, that does not mean you're free to live a life of godlessness and that works are inconsequential. They are not. And and I turn to this passage in Ephesians because verse 10, oftentimes we leave this off, says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So works have nothing to do with your justification. You are declared righteous in God's sight through faith, not by works. But as the great reformer Martin Luther said, justification is by faith alone. But justifying faith never remains alone. It works. James says it this way. James says, Faith without works is it's dead. So in closing, what now? How do I persevere to the end? That's an important question. What should I do? Well, I think there are many things, but primarily this morning, I'd like to encourage you to do what Hebrews 3, chapter 13, Chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, and what Hebrews 10, 25 tells us. And if I were to summarize that in a sentence, I got this from uh, John Piper. He says, perseverance, or I guess you could say eternal security, is a community project. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to, to do what we're doing right now. What I'm doing is just encouraging and exhorting you to just believe the word of God, to press on in the faith, to not lose heart, to not give up, to not shrink back, to not have the drooping hands and the weak knees and just say, you know what, I'm throwing in a towel, I'm done. I'm going to walk away. You need to hear these things. You need to hear what I'm saying this morning. And more than that, more than just hearing this from me or from a preacher on a Sunday morning, you need to do what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 say. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some in their habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, of, day drawing near. So you see this, this. This is probably not referring to the preaching of the word. This is referring more to the one anothering, because you're doing it to one another. So this is more of what happens in small groups. 
or in, in small group discipleship or in a men's study or a women's study or what happens in after or before the service. It's the encouraging one another to press on in the faith. It's to see what's going on in our lives, to see the struggles, and to come alongside and to encourage. We need that. It is a means of grace, a necessary means of grace for us to make it to the end. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in Christianity. You can't make it that way. It's a team sport. You know, oftentimes, you know, I think even like a message like this, <clears throat> you know, you're trying to reach the goats, but oftentimes you reach the sheep. And uh, so kind of preaching to the choir here, right? I mean, you're here. Uh, oftentimes I think we have in mind maybe others who aren't. So let us do that. Let us do this. Let us encourage one another. And I'm telling you, it works. It's powerful. I remember years ago, um, actually on the mission field, I went through just a really spiritual, dark kind of depression. And I'll tell you, honestly, thoughts of just walking away from the faith were absolutely real. And I had this, this godly roommate, uh, a really unique missionary. He's legally blind. Uh, but sitting down with me and just telling me things that I knew, but just preaching the gospel to me. It's remarkable. My heart began to change. My faith increased. He, he prayed for me, and it worked. The, the, these aren't just words. These aren't just suggestions. We need to do this. We have to do this. Recently, we, we met with a brother who's going through an unbelievable trial. And before we met, he said, yeah, I didn't really think this would help. And afterwards, he said, this, this blessed me, this helped. This is the word of God. This is what we need. Let's pray.